Jumping into today's teaching, uh, last week we were coming off of the beginning of, or excuse me, the end of chapter 14, the beginning of chapter 15 in Matthew. Chapter 14 ended where Jesus arrives at a place, people were stoked, they were thrilled because the Son of God had arrived, so let's go to this King Jesus for healing and intervention and restoration. They shouted to all their friends, people swarmed to him, and Jesus acted miraculously in response to their faith. And then as we got into chapter 15, we realized that Jesus is going into this argument with some, some Pharisees, some religious teachers, as they're saying, well, Jesus, we think you're doing this wrong because you're, you're kind of teaching your disciples a different reality about what defiles the human, uh, the, the human experience. Uh, we have all this religious code and construct that keeps us holy before God, and your, your disciples aren't following that. And Jesus basically comes in and says, look, you've created this system of, of mediation that actually subverts God's will in the world. You've, you've taken a, a God's law, you've built something on top of it, and then you've done this. You've actually put God's law in subservience of your human tradition. Why all that's relevant to today is last week we kind of ended with this beautiful call to faith that um, Jesus is teaching, it is not what goes into your mouth that defiles you, it's not your hands that defiles you, it's actually what's inside the center of who you are that defiles you. And the good news is that Jesus is here to replace that with purity and a heart of flesh that is tender and soft to the things of God. He is here to redeem and restore and purify and cleanse all that defiles us here in this life. And so we now get to walk, and and when we experience the frustration at our own hearts, we don't have to question, well, you know, does does God kick me out of the family now? But clearly, no, Jesus says, I've adopted you and I've washed you. And so our defilement actually leads us to rest at the cross rather than frustration. Here's why that's important today. Today is all about an individual's act of faith in Jesus. Yesterday, or excuse me, last week was about a community responding in faith at Gennesaret, and then we talked about how that might become more individual with a human having faith in the reality of their defilement in Christ, and now we get into woman's individual experience of faith in Jesus and restoration. Now, as I um, was thinking about this, I was, had this funny parallel where I was thinking um, faith stories, and especially faith and healing stories, are kind of like the romantic comedies of the Bible, right? They're like warm, they're soft and fluffy, and you just feel real happy at the end, right? Anyone resonate with that at all? That's, that's silly. I'm stretching this a little bit, but that's where my mind goes. Anyone here like romantic comedies? Anyone have a favorite? Feel free to share it. What's your favorite? You've got, oh, you've got mail. I, I mean, I'm personally a fan of Sleepless in Seattle. I also like Hitch. Those are both goodies. <laughs> now, I was going to ask uh, a man to shout it out, but I realized that all of our guys being out at man is nice because now they don't have to lie and pretend they don't like romantic comedies. Like, oh, honey, you really are going to make me watch this one tonight? <laughs> Some of us are comfortable. I like the Hallmark Channel. That's great. I'm also wearing pink on stage, so here we go. Uh, Now, what's interesting is that today's faith and healing story is not a warm, squishy, romantic comedy. It's not full of warm fuzzies and awe moments. Uh, Today's faith and healing story is in some ways much more like a Shakespearean tragedy. It's full of complex characters, nuance, uh, like a sense of um, cultural specificity. There's, There's specific context in today's story, and so... At, we might kind of ex- 
in the sense of, oh, faith and healing, this is going to be warm and fuzzy, and then get punched in the face with the hard reality of Shakespeare, we might kind of, kind of want to spit this out as just being um, not the Jesus we're used to or the Jesus we like. So as we go into this, um, here's how we're going to do this today. Uh, I realized that uh, I really like movies, um, not only rom- rom-coms, but I really like movies, and I've recently learned that I really like watching movies multiple times. Here's why. First time you watch it, you get the gist. You're like, oh, that was a great story, right? And you, you kind of get most of it. The second time you watch it, you already know most of it. And so now you pay attention to the details. And you start to pay attention to the dialogue and the scripting. You start to pay attention to the, the, the arcs of the characters. You start to notice, oh, the director chose to frame this particular act- interaction from this angle. And they chose this sort of lighting and this sort of dynamism. And so the details actually make you enjoy what the story is really about, right? You start to appreciate it in greater depth. Then the third time around, if you could keep watching, at some point you stop geeking out on the details and you just enjoy it. And because you've explored the details, because you've got the gist, now you just enjoy it and you let it move you rather than having to pick it apart and pull it up or just feeling confused and overwhelmed. So today's format, what I've chosen to do is we're going to look at this story. It's really short. It's like a paragraph and a half. And forgive me if this is redundant, we're just going to look at it three times. First time, to get the gist. Second time, to enjoy the details and get a better sense of what's really going on here. And then the third time, we're going to put down the microscopes and just let it move us. We're going to engage with the fullness of who we are. So would you um, turn to Matthew chapter 15 with me real fast? And we'll read this together. Let me pray for us. Father, as we get into this scripture, um, I recognize there's some surface stuff that we may not like, and so would you help us approach you with an open mind and an open heart, Uh, not prejudging you, um, but open to uh, the reality of you, Jesus, Son of God, um, and the hope that you have to offer the world? Spirit, would you come and be our primary teacher? Amen. This is Matthew chapter 15, verse 21 through 28. Now, Jesus went away from there, where he was before, talking to the Pharisees, and he withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, or shouting, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. His disciples came, and they begged him, saying, Send her away, she's crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered her, oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now, first blush through, we're just kind of getting the gist of it. Jesus goes to Tyre and Sidon. He's, he's leaving kind of the, the territory of Israel. He's now moving into a, a separate region. And it's clear here that he's not going for the sake of mission, right? He's, he's trying to get away. He's been followed by lots of crowd. He's been in um, theological debate. So he's trying to get away, presumably for the sake of, of rest, presumably for the sake of space to train his disciples free of serving the crowds. And so it's clear here he's, he's looking for space but he's been identified. Someone recognizes him. You, 
You're the Jesus of Nazareth guy. You're the son of David. Help me, help me, help me. So this woman cries out, and Jesus says, nothing. To a woman pleading for mercy, says nothing. His disciples finally get annoyed. Jesus, she's being obnoxious. Send her away. Jesus, interestingly, says, I've been sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She comes closer, kneeling at his feet now. Help me. She says three words, Lord, help me. Jesus, again, bizarrely enough, it's not right to give the children's bread to the dogs. And this woman engages, she leans in. Again, this is definitely not a rom-com, right? At this moment, if this was a rom-com, maybe like the camera would zoom in on like the, the, the glitter in Jesus's eyes and then it would like pan out and he would, oh, my daughter, right? No, like he's rebuffing her, right? Philosophically rebuffing her. And it's bizarre. There's, there's clearly more going on here. And so she engages, says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs get scraps from the house, don't they? And Jesus, in this moment of tension, blown away by her faith. Great is your faith. Be it done for you as you would ask. That's our first time through. In movie terms, I'm going to say this is our first viewing. We've got the gist, right? We're at least familiar with the moving part pieces. And I'm going to subtitle our first viewing, definitely not a rom-com. You guys want to go through again? So this time I'm not going to read the text. I'm just going to kind of go top to bottom and look at, well, what are the details? If we look at like Matthew's work, Matthew's a director, right? He's, he's an author. He, he could have cut this out. Some of the, the magic of good film happens on the things that directors choose to cut. They choose not to include it because it's distracting. It's unhelpful. It, it doesn't make the characters clear. And so Matthew has directorial authority to cut this and leave it out. But he's saying... There's something in the way that I'm portraying this. I'm choosing these elements. I want them here so you get a more clear, beautiful picture of the person of Jesus. So let's go through one more time and look at the details. So Jesus has tried to get away from the crowds. He's moved into the district of Tyre and Sidon. This is biblical kind of shorthand for saying the region of the pagans. These are human beings that have intentionally said, Yahweh, God of Israel, want nothing to do with it. We're going to construct our own societies based on the way we want to do it, worshiping things that we want to worship. This is a place where, like, the, the common agreement is not God's will on heaven and earth, right? Our will on heaven and earth, the way we want to do it. This is a, a pagan nation. This is full of idolatry. So it's kind of bizarre here. So Jesus goes to this area, and behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. A pagan woman. A woman who's uh, participated in, in idolatry or agnosticism or atheism of some sort comes to Jesus. She's not part of God's chosen people, not part of the nation of Israel, she, and yet she comes to Jesus and notice this. Here's what she shouts out. O Lord, son of David. And so this seemingly uneducated pagan woman knows enough about scripture where she's identifying Jesus with two titles. One says Lord. Now this is just kind of a Greek um, word that just means like a person of authority, Lord, master. And so one, she's identifying with a universal um, language of authority, universal system of like, hey, I'm coming to you in need. You are my master in this situation. 
But the second title that she uses is son of David. So she's using the universal Gentile language of authority, but then the second thing she's using is Jewish-specific language of authority. Like, pagans don't run around calling people the son of David. Son of David comes straight out of the religious heritage of the Jewish nation. And so she is saying, you're not just any prophet. You're not just any uh, supernatural figure. You're not just any witch doctor. You are the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament scriptures. You are the Messiah according to the promises of Yahweh. And you are Lord in my eyes, son of David. And so she's calling on his identity as the son of David as she's looking for intervention. Do you guys remember a couple weeks ago we talked about the difference of um, how important it is to see and receive clearly? We need to see Jesus clearly for who he is and then receive him clearly for who he is. Here we see that's happening. She sees him for who he really is, not just a random um, blessed figure, but the son of David, the Messiah. So she cries out, and the condition she's crying out over is her daughter. Her daughter oppressed by a demon, severely oppressed. Now, as we continue looking at the details, this is where we notice that Jesus doesn't say a thing. Peculiar, right? He could just say no, right? That would be a much more simple interaction. Instead, he says nothing. Now, um, people who have thought through this come to a couple different conclusions. I definitely do not have any sense of mastery over all these perspectives. But a couple that um, I've read in my preparation, one is that what Jesus is doing here by not answering is he's testing. He's like seeing how much faith do you have? How many like little walls and barriers can I put up and see how, how, how faithful and how passionate, how, how much will you push through? And at first, I'm, I'm a little hesitant to accept that, though I understand where that might come from, right? There, there is language in the New Testament that we are refined as though by fire. Uh, James opens and says, let trials of various kinds produce steadfastness, right? So there is this idea that the sufferings of life, the challenges of life are meant to create enduring, motivated faith. So that's scriptural. Um, Another perspective is that uh, Jesus supernaturally knows her heart already, and he's um, having her go through this for the sake of teaching his own followers, which is interesting, right? I think it's particularly um, attractive given our current cultural moment, right? Because if we believe this, what he's basically doing is he's platforming an un- underprivileged person, a woman in this um, context who is, is underprivileged, potentially disregarded, and he's taking a, a woman and a pagan woman outside of the promised community of God, and he's platforming her and saying, hey, all of you privileged men, be like this lady. And so he's saying, yeah, you religious elite, all you guys who woke up with privilege growing up in the Jewish tradition, look at this pagan underdog, see this empowered woman and follow her faith. And that is alignment with our current cultural moment. And there's some attractiveness about Jesus just not playing into typical like power roles because he doesn't usually, like he's usually flipping the tables. And so there's something attractive about that. And um, especially if that's kind of a political side of things that you're attracted to, but um, I still don't buy it. The third way of reading this, and maybe there's more, but the one that I personally feel holds the most water, 
and maybe it's a little bit of all of these, but the one I feel holds, holds the most water is the most simple. <laughs> Jesus is thinking. He's thinking. And we get clues as to why he's thinking, what he's noodling through in his head um, in his future responses. His first response is, I've only been sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So we see Jesus, this human, um, fully God, fully man, is in his humanity is having to think through the will of his father. God's given him a mission. Jesus, I'm sending you to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You're going to do your ministry in for the nation of Israel. Now, for me, part of the reason this is interesting is um, two things I want to hit on. First one is, for me, this is compelling because it, it hits on the humanity of Jesus and the fact that he, in his humanity, lived a perfect and sinless life while having to troubleshoot his relationship with his dad. God has commissioned him, and yet he's not a robot. He's, a, he's an actual person, right? And I don't mean to diminish his divinity, but he is still thinking through what is the will of my father and how do I live out my walk, or how do I live my life in obedience? To me, that's beautiful because now the idea of the sinless, spotless lamb of God is not just this robot who perfectly followed everything because he could not think it through, but he was required to walk through really challenging, muddy situations with a limited set of information. I know what my dad's told me universally, I'm here to give my life as a ransom for many. And I know that phase one of this plan is to the lost sheep of the nation of Israel. And so I know that it's for many, but right now, here's my marching orders. And so where do, where's like the gray space of obedience and stretching here? And Jesus is noodling this through. To me, I don't think this takes away from his divinity nor makes him a less admirable character. I think it increases those things. So one, it, it like adds this beauty of his obedience to the Father. The second thing that this does for me is it, it adds a, a, an angle of specificity to the redemptive work of God that makes it more believable to me. Because what this shows me is that Jesus is not plopping down with zero context. Jesus is not sent by a, a sky fairy who is love, who, who just has like a general purpose in the world that he kind of wants everyone just to be a little bit nicer and love more. And that's just this like mushy mission, right? That's really hard for me to, one, just believe is real given the complexity of our world, but two, it loses his historicity and, and like academic rigor. But here it seems that Jesus is saying, no, the movement of God in the world has a plan to it. There's, there's movement. God is like a battlefield strategist saying, okay, that's my goal. We're going like, to conquer hell. Here's how we're going to get there. I'm going to send you here, and then I'm going to bring in you guys here, and then the next step is we're going to do this. And he's, he's like managing the real resources of his people. Right? Part of the beauty of the gospel is you and I are commissioned into partnership with Jesus. We're sent as ambassadors. And so therefore, if that aligns with the specific will of God, he's got to plan around our specific limitations, right? And even as I look at the larger scope of the Old Testament story, and I know I'm kind of getting to the weeds here. Bear with me. We'll get back to the main story. As I look at the Old Testament as it progresses, it's, it does that. It progresses. God says, okay, here, I'm going to teach you about trust and faithfulness. And now you've broken that. 
I'm going to teach you what it means to really be trusting and faithful because I'm going to double down on my promise. And now here I'm going to teach you about family. Here I'm going to teach you about promise. Here I'm going to teach you about covenant. Here I'm going to teach you about redemption. Here I'm going to teach you about mediation. Here I'm going to teach you about, and, and so it's like this moving set of concrete things that to me holds water. It's not just a mushy, let's all love each other more, but there's like a concrete set that Jesus, the Son of God, is fulfilling. He's being sent out to fulfill a purpose. Now, if we keep looking at our second time through, what are the details that we see? We see one, it to me seems plausible, that Jesus is thinking. He's got all that, all that stuff I just threw at you, that's in his head. <laughs> And he's thinking through, I know that God is moving in stages. I know he's got particulars in his plan. Where do I fit as an obedient son? So that's the first time where he says, I'm sent only to the lost sheep of of, the house of Israel. Next, this woman comes closer, kneels before him. Lord, help me. Jesus continues here, the sense of like inner debate. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, part of me is still reeling that he's just called a woman a dog. But if I look back at this, what Jesus is kind of saying is, hey, I've been sent here with missional bread. I've been sent as a human man with a set number of years, minutes, and sleepless nights. Like, I've only got, an, I've only got a baggie of stuff here. How do I use this most in alignment with the will of my Father? And how would you guys feel if you gave me a bag and said, hey, I'm going to write my kid's name on this. This is for Caleb. Go give Caleb his lunch. And then on my way to like go give Caleb his lunch, I said, oh, that's a really cute puppy dog. And I decided to like rip his peanut butter and jelly in half and give it to the dog. You'd probably be frustrated, right? (laughs) Because that's not the dog's food, right? That's the child's food. And so it seems there's nothing wrong with this. If God has sent Jesus with 30 years of life and three years of ministry before his crucifixion, there's only so much in his baggie. And it's meant for the kids. It's meant as the next step of the plan of redemption. We're going to get to the dogs in a little bit. And then if we continue to look at the details, the woman says this. Yes. Yes. Now, before we go any farther, it's, this is so weird to me. She could have gone to him and said, you call me what? <laughs> Never mind. I don't want you to heal my, you think you're the son of David? Scratch that, you jerk. But some of the greatness of this woman's faith, if, if we look at Jesus' words at the end, is Jesus says, you don't have a right to the kid's food. And she goes, I know. But even the dogs get scraps from the master's table. And if I could par- like tie that to last week's teaching, Jesus says, it's what comes out of the mouth of a human that defiles us. And here, this woman is saying, look, I know I'm defiled. I know I'm a pagan woman. I know I'm not part of God's covenant people. I don't have anything that would, like, I don't have the right to stand on to demand anything from you, Lord, Son of David. 
I have no right to demand anything. You're actually right about me, but I think there's enough on that table for everyone in the whole world. I have the right to sit at the table. I know I'm not a child. I know I belong out in the streets because of the defilement of my heart, because of the pagan heritage that I come from. But I think you're good enough and abundant enough that there just might be enough that I can get some goodness out of this. And to me, if I'm looking at Jesus' last teaching from earlier in 15, this just smacks of truth. Because what right does any person who has a defiled heart to stroll up to the king of kings and say, you called me what? No, 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 you give me that food right now. I deserve that because the reality is none of us do. Now, interestingly here, I want to point us to Matthew as a director and an author. Some of the beauty of this scene, right? If we're using the the movie thing, like this is Matthew. Matthew's better than Steven Spielberg here. One of the, the commentators that I read says, Matthew uses the literary delicacy of a haiku. Here's why. Look at this next part. Jesus had two phrases that he uses so far. First time he was silent, so let's not count that. Um, go to the one with like the three lines, if you don't mind. Um, the, the first time he's silent. The second time, it says he answered. Excuse me. First time he answered. Second time he answered. The third time, he speaks directly to this woman. This is some of where I think he's thinking. Because he's talking, but Matthew very intentionally doesn't say to who. He doesn't say to the disciples. He doesn't say to this woman. And if you look at the Greek, you can see there's like this haiku delicacy here. Jesus is thinking out loud. I've been sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What do I do with this woman who's asking of me? And then he's kind of thinking out loud again to no one in particular. It's not right. It's not right to give the kids food to the dogs. What do I do in this situation? And then this woman, by sharing her full, wholehearted faith with him, moves his heart. And Matthew, as an author and a director, chooses to go from the vague language into, then Jesus specifically responded to this woman specifically. Now we have specific identifiers, and it seems that Jesus has clicked into gear. Jesus here has clicked into gear and says, I know what to do. I know the universal will of my Father, and I also have been moved by your wholehearted faith. And I would point our attention one more time to the humanity and the personhood of Jesus. What good news and what beautiful image is it that Jesus responds? Rather than being a robotic automaton with a set, like, you know, dial one for this, he's a thinking, feeling human, perfectly obeying the complex will of God in the world in order to give mercy. And he says, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. And here's the last detail, the second time through, that moves me. He gives her an advanced pass to the kingdom of God, his next step. He's so moved by her faith, he says, okay, I know I'm sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but I'm going to give you a behind the peek of what the next movement of God is. At the end of Jesus' life, after his death and resurrection, 
He does not say to his disciples, go find all the Jews in the world. Matthew 28, what does he say? He says, go to the nations. The next step of God the Father is that I'm sending you. Jesus came with a limited human capacity to atone for our sins, to open up a brand new phase of God's advancement in the world. And it seems that Jesus has let this Canaanite woman have a sneak peek and a foretaste of what that next step is going to be. The next step where Jesus sends the Spirit of God to his disciples on the day of Pentecost to empower them with the Spirit to continue to advance the kingdom of God to the Gentiles. He sends Peter a vision that I'm opening up my kingdom to the Gentiles. He sends Paul, an apostle, specifically to advance the good news to the Gentiles. And I want to point our attention with concrete um, clarity that this is the next movement of God's plan. And I want to point us to Romans. Would you pull this up on the screen? This is Romans chapter 8. This is the next plan of God in the world available because of the fidelity of Jesus to God's plan. Because Jesus did not stray from God's plan, but was obedient even in the complexity and the hardship, this next phase is now available to us. This is um, Paul writing to Romans. Romans being a Gentile city. To all who are led by the Spirit of God are now sons and daughters of God. Because you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters. Through the Spirit, we now cry, Abba, Dad, Father. And the Spirit himself now bears witness with our own spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, here's why I choose this passage. Of, of all the things in the New Testament about the Gentiles, here's why I choose this. What was the second abrasive thing that Jesus said to the woman? What I have is for my children. I've set a table of good things for my children. And here we see in Romans, as the Apostle Paul is revealing the next step of God's plan in the world, a letter written to a pagan Gentile city, that the next phase of this plan, the sneak peek that this Canaanite woman got to experience was that God wants to take all the unworthy, undeserving people who are outside on the streets right now and put a new spirit into them so he can bring them to the table. No longer as dogs getting scraps, but now as children who are heirs. And if heirs, co-heirs, equal heirs, equal heirs with the Son of God. This is like a mind-blowing grace that you and I, if I may be so bold, anyone ever felt like you'd tuck your tail to come to God? <laughs> Hoping that you'll just get a little bit of goodness from the table. And here we see Jesus is foreshadowing. He's opening up for us. And Paul is clarifying. If you have the spirit of God in you, we walk up to the table with equal right and standing as Jesus, the son of God, our co-heir. Jesus has a spot at that table with a little name placard. It says, Jesus of Nazareth. And if we, receiving the Spirit of God, walk up to that same table, there's a seat 
with a little placard that says Paul Serafin. And there's a little placard that says Danica Dobesh. And there's a little placard that says Micah Dobesh. And so we don't need to tuck our tails and wonder, do I belong at this table? Is there enough for me? Will I have enough with a scrap? We now, with as mind-boggling as this is, get to walk to the table of of God in all of its abundance and goodness and find our seat. Ready for the third view? Last time through. As we go through this one more time, Remember, time one is to get the gist. Time two was to understand the details. Time three is to get out of our heads and engage with this at a wholehearted level. If it's helpful for you, let me read you the story. Would you put your Bibles away or give me your attention? Can I just read this to you? And Jesus went from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and they begged him, saying, Send her away. She's crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and she knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And then Jesus answered her, oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now, my personal experience with this story is, first time I read it, it's like a wall. I'm like, what? I start to understand it. I start to understand Jesus isn't being a jerk. He's being faithful to the commands of his father. He's being a reasonable, kind-hearted person, even though that's not apparent on the surface. And I don't feel like I'm manipulating the details to make it seem that way. I think that's actually what's there. But the third time I read this through, I get out of the details, and the thing that I'm most moved by is that there's a mom who went to a man to say, my daughter's hurting. And as I'm moved, I like am moved with empathy for this woman. And part of me wonders, like, where's dad? Where's the husband? Why is this mom out here all alone looking for help? Maybe he's at man camp. I don't know. But what I see on these pages is a woman who's willing to be passionate and a woman who's willing to engage with the reality of her brokenness and her hurt as her daughter is being spiritually oppressed. And she's willing to make a fool of herself out of her passion for for her family. And in some ways, I identify with the disciples. Send her away. She's being too nuts. Like, yeah, you can be faithful, but just don't be silly, right? Like, don't be a disturbance in your faithfulness. Don't, don't actually expect that much 
from Jesus, right? Let's be like calm and cool and collected, and then let's go to the Son of God, the Son of David, for some help. And what I'm moved by is this woman's willingness to be open-hearted and vulnerable through surface-level barriers or surface-level rejection. She presses in. How many times? Three, four? Coming to the feet of this man who she doesn't know other than through reputation and to say, I have hope that you will do something. Now, if I can share a little bit of my journey in preparation for this. Wednesday, Wednesday morning, I was going through this and I was spending some time in prayer with my wife and I was all excited because this is, this is the part of the sermon where everyone gets really excited and we're willing to like pour our hearts out to God and say, Jesus, we need your intervention. I need your intervention from my son or my daughter or my cousin or my parents. I need you to come and make a difference in, this, in my world. And I'm, I'm excited about this and, I'm, and we're gonna open up the altar and we're gonna bring people to pray and to intercede and to let the passions of our hearts pour out in honesty to God. And I was so excited to do that with you on Wednesday. <laughs> and Thursday morning came and I had gut-dropping fear. And I almost scratched it. Because what I thought was, I'm just going to get people really excited, and Jesus, you're going to disappoint them. People are going to go to you, Jesus, son of David, with their hearts broken, and they're going to come to you with prayer and petition, and they're going to kneel at your feet, and you're going to disappoint them. And I've wrestled with this for the last four days. And I've wrestled with the sense of disqualification. Like, I'm a pastor about to teach on this, and like the deepest part of my heart is, it's not, he doesn't care. He's not going to do anything. And as I've settled in into the honesty of my own heart and the responsibility of this text, it seems to me there's three ways that we could go about this. First way we could do it is we all just recognize with honesty, we've all been disappointed in prayer. So let's just stop asking. Have a really nice sermon about Jesus opening the family of God and go home. The second way we could do this is we could recognize that we've all been disappointed in prayer. But interpret this, that if we just get loud enough and shout enough and cry enough and just like go, go, go and get really excited when we pray, then Jesus will say, great is your faith, what you want is done. That's an option. And I think the thing that you and I both know is we can do that all we want and not have a guarantee that God will act. And I think the third way we could go about this and the way that I think is actually most true to this passage is we can have an honest conversation that we've all been disappointed in prayer. I would say probably all of us, if not right now, in the past or in the future will say, is it really worth asking again? And yet, 
recognize that's part of the story, but not the whole story. The whole story is God does work. Not always, but God does respond to this woman's open-hearted requests and passions and desires. And so it seems to me that the third way we can do this is not have to whip ourselves up into an artificial frenzy of faith, but we can stir ourselves up to a genuine sort of lifelong faith that says, I believe and recognize the will of my father is sometimes confusing. And sometimes he's silent. Sometimes he says, not right now. And that's part of the journey. That is the truth of God's message. And I think there's the reality that we can approach this with open-hearted hope and expectation and a willingness to risk. I think there's the reality that option number one is let's just not risk. Let's all play it cool and won't have to be worried about being disappointed. And it seems very obvious, like that's just safer. It's just a much safer way of going about this whole Christian thing. But where we're unwilling to risk, we're unwilling to change also. And we're unwilling to open ourselves to the potential of God's intervention. So I think the third way we can do this is we risk a little bit. We risk the passions of our hearts that say, I'm hurting because someone I care about is hurting. I'm hurting because of this situation. I'm hurting. And Jesus, Lord, Son of David, I understand I might be turned away. I understand I might be disappointed. But I'm coming to you not as a dog, but as a child. And I know that I do have a spot at that table no matter what. So whether I've got to wait 60 years to experience the fullness of this, or you're going to do this right now, either way, I'm going to be obedient and open-hearted and fervent in your presence. To me, this is compelling, and I would like to do this as a decision in my own heart, having been honest with you with my Thursday morning. (laughs) This is a step in the direction of open-hearted, dangerous faith. So what I would like to do at this point is open up the altar, if we can call it that. That's not really our church lingo. We don't call this the altar. But I would like to open up an opportunity for us to not just shout at God from a distance, but to come up and kneel at the feet of the Son of Man, or the Son of David, and say, Lord, help me. And whether you're a mom or a dad or a friend, let ourselves care enough to ask. Ben, can I you guys come up? I've asked a handful of people um, to come up and be willing to pray for you. So if, if I've asked you, would you come on up? Um, we're going to have a couple of people off to the left and the right and, and here up front. Um, we're going to sing two songs like we normally do with communion, but I'm opening up an alternative. So there's communion tables. There's four on the sides. Um, communion here is the promise that Jesus has given him his life as a ransom for many to take the dogs in the street and transform them into a child at his table. That is the message of communion through the life of Jesus, that we are washed and redeemed and now are identified as co-heirs in Jesus. So during the next two songs, you can take communion, you can sit and pray, or you can stand up. There's a handful of people um, up here. I'll be right here. We would love to pray with you and go to bat, to go to bat with fervent, open-hearted prayer for you.
Would you stand and sing for these next two songs?